something is substantively different about the the scope and longevity and reach of mm-hmm. this protest um, it's not in my view it's not at all a, uh, a departure right I mean this th- this movement builds on on specific people and ideas that have been gesticulating since even before the Civil War ended um, so there was a mm-hmm. sort of I, I would argue a a like consistent uh, ever-growing critical mass of people who are anti-sectarian pro-reform uh, pro the parts of Taif that have never been implemented and yes. so on and that gets bigger and bigger and bigger and the sort of status quo powers uh, have to work a little harder each time uh, to, to, to beat it back and so this is this, in other words, isn't a transformative moment, but there is, you know, it's larger than ever before, yeah. and so the status quo powers have had to do more than they've had to do in a long time, right. uh, and eventually, either, you know, either the status quo will just kill the country to stay in power, or they will have to change. Nasi Kambanis, and I'm a senior fellow at the Century Foundation. For the Lebanese who are living a life that's nearly impossible to live, uh, it's not you know it's not a a, a a game of points and increments. It's becoming a, you know can you keep your kids in school? Can eventually it will come to the point of can you eat? Right. Uh, and and so these are you know critical points. What you're describing is three decades or potentially longer of frustration with how Lebanon emerged from the civil war, at least how it restructured itself, that there, that this has sort of reached its limit. But would you be able to point the finger at the economy and say that is why people are demanding perhaps, perhaps more now than they did before? I've always, I've always believed that you have to factor in like multiple levels of, of motivation mm. in, in understanding any of this. So, there, you know, there are people who argue it's only economic and there are other people who argue it's only ideological or only about security. To me, it's obvious that it's all these things at once. Right. Uh, what has changed now is the economic calculus. Mm. Okay, so, um, you know, I just I just moved back to New York after six years in Lebanon and I've I witnessed the last six years of decline. Mm. Um, and for anyone who's known Lebanon intimately over the last two decades, uh, you can see a steady, you know, since 2000, I think there's a sort of high watermark in 2000 where the post-war recovery reached its peak and there was a maximum of certainly livability, you know, and how clean the environment was, how much things cost. Um, In terms of security, uh, yes, there was a Syrian occupation, but it was relative, you know, that was a moment of relatively, you know, after the Israeli uh, occupation ended, there was a moment of, so you could sort of, summer of 2000, you could say, this is not bad yeah. uh, to be yeah. to, to live in Lebanon, and since then, on every indicator, whether it's ideological, whether it's security based, whether it's economic, uh, health, uh, social, everything has declined uh, steadily. Um, and I would argue that since um, you know, since uh, the Syrian war, which has sapped and distracted a lot of the the sort of uh, underwater, like if you think of Lebanon as an iceberg, so there's all submerged uh, things that you know the the, the dark economy, the yes, money yes. laundering, all these things that make the country work without being measurable or or, or uh, yeah. fully exposed. All those things are under colossal strain or distraction, uh, including the the, the the black economy and the Zaim economy, yeah. uh, and so life has worsened in in 
very observable ways. And so this, when this economic crisis hit in the fall, yes. uh, that is, you know, one, it's a, it's an order of magnitude different, right? Yeah. You go from yeah. creeping poverty, creeping inability to function to suddenly not, you know, not being able to access your money, not being able to do things that even in the worst, even in the middle of the 2006 war you could do. Right. Um, right. Uh, and, and that's coming on top of, of everything being awful for years and years and years. The reason I brought up the economy was because although it is horrible at the moment and it continues to decline, the demands on the street for political change seem to stand out in dramatic ways. When I bring up political change, I mean it seems like there is an attempt to upend the post-war order and perhaps usher in a new social contract. Whether or not that happens is a, is a, is a big question. But it almost seems like the economy the economic collapse has brought about demands that are absent in previous protests or marginalized. Yeah, so so I don't quite see it that way because I see all these economic problems as pol- these are political decisions. Mm, mm. So every single every single thing wrong with the Lebanese economy, or you know, if you look at something as as uh, uh, sort of technocratic as building permits in in Beirut, or you know, the, it's all completely political. Yeah. And you know, we all know this. We all right. know that that these decisions are being made for political gain by uh, the Zuama and their and their associates. Yes. So. Uh, in the end, whether you're talking about garbage pickup in 2015 or whether you're talking about, you know, un, uh, uninhabited rental apartments in Beirut, as housing activists have been for decades, these are all purely political questions. And every Lebanese right. understands instinctively that these are decisions being made by these relatively unaccountable leaders uh, for political purposes. And they, they feel this way when they agree with the decisions and when they have problems with the decisions. And that is that is correct. Right. right, um, right. And. You know, ultimately, when we see uh, any kind of crisis be resolved in Lebanon, it's always resolved because a, a small group of men meets at uh, Nabi Beri's house, and you know, some 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 crisis, whether it's security in Tripoli or Saida or some piece of the economy that's going off the rails. You know, the wheat producers or the gas importers. A small group of men can yes. can can join together in the speaker's office and make anything happen. And so this proves to any observer of Lebanon that these are political choices, political decisions, not economic decisions. So in other words, the what could have just been a natural decline in the economy instead is a political calculation that backfired. Yeah, a series of crises provoked by political decisions, right. and in this case, they backfired. And right, right. In other moments, uh, similar moments in the past, the you know, the, the I mean, the housing bubble almost exploded a few years ago, yeah. and they were able to to sort of paper over the Ponzi scheme and make it work, and that was right. that was a relief to people, not because they were you know regular Lebanese weren't profiting from this, they yeah. just they just wanted the the lira not to collapse. Now I, I'm quite fortunate because I got to attend a. Uh, a panel discussion that you were part of at LAU New York. And although our we were probably at least 15 meters apart, now we're half a meter apart because one of my microphones seems to have broken. <laughs> so we're very intimate right now. I'm going to ask you more intimate questions than the panel discussion. Fantastic. Ask away. <laughs> well, uh, without crossing the personal line. <laughs> so let's keep it political. <laughs> ask whatever you like. So I, 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 like the, um, I like the dynamic of the sort of it wasn't necessarily a debate. It was more just trying to 
trying to understand one part of the last, let's say, at least 30 years of inability for Lebanon to emerge from the civil war into a sovereign state, the way we understand that. In, in other words, that there have been structural components within the post-war order that have not allowed the state to function the way Lebanon functioned, let's say, at least in the 50s or mm-hmm. the 60s. And the discussion hovered around Hezbollah and other things too. Um, I know that you've written a book, A Privilege to Die, that focuses in on Hezbollah's role in Lebanon and the region. Uh, but I, I wanted to ask your your views at this moment in time. I like that you talked about many, many things that Lebanese are rightfully upset about, whether it's electricity, garbage, drinking water, or education for their children, all of those things that don't really tie into Hezbollah. They're, they're a separate story. But I want to posit the question. Is it possible to imagine Lebanon at some point in the future functioning? <laughs> I'm using this term as loosely as possible, where it's not continually collapsing in different ways, where it's not reaching where it is today, so long as there's a group like Hezbollah involved in the story, not necessarily in the trash crisis, not necessarily in electricity, or even even in the basic elements of day-to-day life. I'm talking about the Lebanese state as a whole. And I mean this in the broadest way possible. Right. Well, so if I understand your question correctly, I mean, one, one way of answering it is, is to say that, uh, you know, Hezbollah as a hybrid actor, as a sort of parallel state, is a symptom of the state collapse and, and uh, after a time, also a driver. Right. right. So, right. Uh, you know, the, the basic solution to the Hezbollah question and many other questions is simply to have a better functioning Lebanese state, you know, a central state that can actually do its job. And uh, uh, some people will, I think, with with some uh, some correctness argue that now Hezbollah is is one of the entrenched actors that will subtly resist the the, uh, reconstitution, let's say, of the Lebanese state. Um, And I think that's partly true, but but Hezbollah's role in this gets greatly exaggerated by its detractor. So um, I'll give you my my shortest possible answer on this. You can ask me more if you're interested. I, I think all all the Zuama uh, have a stake in Lebanon functioning as a war economy. So, Le- so mm-hmm. Lebanon is a war economy that is uh, functions to the benefit of predatory warlords mm-hmm. and their warlord economies. And ultimately, that system is so enriching and effective that it even captures those groups that did not begin as warlords. So, for example, Hariri uh, came into power not as a warlord. He was he was a post-war figure. Uh, who was, you know, neoliberal and the rest of it, but he was not a, a warlord. And yet, within a decade of, of his rise to power, he was a, 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 a firmly entrenched part of the uh, sort of warlord economy, the the Zaim economy. Uh, so the post-war economy is the issue. Well, I, I don't think it's the post-war economy. Mm-hmm. It's the, the, the Lebanese economy, I think, oper- I mean, I, I believe that a lot of these terrible pathologies predate the civil war mm. and they caused the civil war right so you had you had a group of mafia bosses uh, who ran extractive uh, extractive uh, sort of 
mafia-style protection rackets and extractive schemes. They treated the national economy as something to be uh, profited off of through monopoly uh, powers or, or you know, uh, unfair concessions um, and uh, earned through wasta or sectarian set-asides. And that ultimately was so profitable to the leaders that they preferred to wreck the country through a civil war and the, uh, around which they mobilized people on sectarian identity rather than any, you know, including Kamal Jubilee attempt to mobilize people on some other set of identities, and there were, and there were others too who tried to uh, to stick to their non-sectarian um, or more than sectarian identities. Ultimately, that was the most profitable model. I'm going to try to project here that going back to, let's say, the late 60s, early 70s, that the um, you would not discount the PLO's uh, security component. You would just add... You would yeah, say I mean, that. I think the PLO fit in that model. Right, so I mean, it fits in the model. Yes, okay, I mean, yeah, the, yeah. The, I think the, the the PLO approach, in fact, uh, you know, at, at its peak, exemplified the model. And if you look at Lebanese history over the last, uh, let's say, four decades, you'll see. I mean, there was a point at which Fatah was the uh, the dominant, uh, you know, para state. Then there was a period where um, where Jaja's, uh, you know, the Lebanese forces were the dominant, you know, the dominant parallel state. Today, the single strongest version of this is Hezbollah. Um, simply because they're the strongest and wealthiest and most powerful of, of these groups, their and, and their their model is essentially uh, a successor of this approach. Now, you know, there, you, we definitely can see ways in which it is distinct from these other groups. I don't mean to say that they're all the same. I mean, Hezbollah is not the same as Amal, as Jumblat, as Future, and so on. There really are differences. Uh, but the key difference right now is just that they're the most powerful group, you know. And um, we have so it's not that it's not how they emerged. After the civil war with protected status, you you would put the economy as as paramount to the story. No, uh, no, the economy is not. I mean, they, that's the, the economy's. It's not that the economy is paramount. It's this mafia yeah. model well, is what, is what's paramount. And Hezbollah yeah. comes out on top in the period they come out on top because of Syria's protection, because mm-hmm. of Syrian Iranian patronage, mm-hmm. and because all the rival groups disarmed after Taif and. Uh, confluence of other factors, yeah. right? So, so right, they right. end up becoming the dominant group. And yes, part of the story is their ideology, which mm. is is more popular with their followers right now than the other group's ideologies with their followers. Right. And we also have to put this into the story. Israel was occupying Lebanon up until 2000, and mm. then has continued to attack periodically since. And many other parties don't actually care. Right? So that's some parties do, sure. some yeah. don't, but but it is a real part of the story. You know what's interesting? I like going back to that chapter in history because it's over it's overlooked, I think, that how significant of a moment that was. Not just in the economic You mean two thousand and the Israeli withdrawal? Nineteen ninety nine, two thousand, yeah. And I I mean I distinctly recall the Syrians being the most upset at that withdrawal. That their reason, their raison d'être, is, is challenged by the, the the end of the of the enemy. And Hezbollah was the only security force that could operate in South Lebanon at, in those years, up until two thousand and six, well, up until following the July War. So, I, the reason I'm pushing on this is. Is, I mean, I, I I haven't heard this before actually. That they that in other words, they they are on top because they are the most powerful, but they fit into the long-standing model, which is a nice way of looking at it. They, it's like yeah, long- they've they've become you know no 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 one can escape becoming Lebanese when they're in power in Lebanon. Right. But doesn't that in a sense discount 
their military component to a degree at least. And what I meant from the initial question was that they are able to perhaps dictate or, or at times derail attempts at Lebanese sovereignty and whether or not that is a precondition for fixing the mundane issues. So, so uh, maybe, um, and, and just to, to, to make clear what my view of all this is, so I just, I just sort of gave the on the one hand, but then here's the on the other. Um, you know, Hezbollah is preeminent because it uses violence to maintain its monopoly of, of, of power. Um, and it has very brilliantly kept a monopoly of power while having its partners um, do most of the governing. So it can have Amal and, yeah. and FPM as it's, you know, they say, oh, they're, they're the ones who right. are doing the bad governance, not our fault, but they are the power behind these parties, and they have murdered dozens of figures, yes. and, and, and go, going back, you know, at least to 2005. Um, and that is something, again, everyone in Lebanon knows. It doesn't matter that, you know, they say, oh, we haven't been convicted, there, these things aren't, you know, it's not, it's not a historical fact. Well, if you're Lebanese, whether you're pro or anti uh, Hezbollah's um, sort of hegemony, you know that they either did those those killings or condoned them, um, and that is a coercive power that that is not lost on the Lebanese order, and it, and it is something that that they that is responsible for holding back real reform. And so that I mean, this translates to today's moment where if you are a young activist, you know that very easily you could find your family blackmailed into silence. You could find yourself detained on a yeah. pretext. You could find yourself. I mean, they don't go around killing young activists because they don't need to not because right. that would somehow be beyond their 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 their, their right. moral or political right. toolkit they have a better tool to shut people up right. um, and you know apologists for Hezbollah will say no, you know the others are no better, um, and that right. may be true. But the others aren't in charge right now. The others aren't the ones with the power. They are the ones with the power, and they are the ones who are underwriting uh, an increasingly authoritarian order inside Lebanon. So in a way, that's nice because you're able to see both sides, and they may both add up to the same issue, which is the economy matters for reasons, and the political order is a result of certain reasons as, as certain issues. And the security and, calculus is is right. not. Uh, is it, not a tool of that. It is an. It is. It is a building block of this. It is right. fundamental to it as well. Projecting a bit, can you can you see attempts at reform like what we saw the last four months uh, translate into a challenge towards at least that security issue? And because I, I, I mean, were you there? During, you, you were. And the pro- were you here or in Lebanon during the? I I left Lebanon a, a week before the protest started wow. in the okay. fall. So you literally saw the what was. I was talking up to, to everyone. Everyone I, I talked to was talking about their economic terror right. at this crisis that everybody right. saw coming, Absolutely. and then it happened like clockwork a week later, right. which and was astounding. That week, and we look back on it. I mean, it's like every trigger possible happened. You know that feeling of anxiety and uncertainty. And then you see an outpouring of rage. Fast forward four months, potentially five months, or even, let's say, a year or five years from now. Is that rage politically sustainable and translatable to something that could address the economy and the security issues of Lebanon? So, and I know it's a huge right. question, but I mean, just in, in your 
I mean, <laughs> my examined my story. analytical take yeah. uh, is that it's very hard to unseat this status quo arrangement. It is right. resilient. It is versatile. It is unscrupulous. Mm. Um, it has it has the advantage of all the resources of the state, which it gets to, even while not being a state, it gets to use all those resources of the state, including Amnalam and economic levers and many other things besides to keep power and to suppress dissent. And, you know, as we've seen in the current moment, it's easy for these kinds of, like, if you don't care, if you have power and you actually don't care at all about the citizenry and you don't care at all about governance, which yeah. none of these parties do, including Hezbollah, you can just wait it out. And if you if you really actually don't care about the the moral hit to your legitimacy, it, you know it's 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 a it's actually not a bad bet um, to bet on just waiting. And this is I mean it's not exactly analogous, but this is what the Iraqi status quo has done in the face of an even I mean an amazing an amazing mm. brave bold very mm. national level I mean very similar to Lebanon's but on the on the much larger scale that Iraq's is right. and where they've been killed in the hundreds yeah. and they keep coming back and the right. and the status quo says um, again not a bad bet they say yeah you know we're not even going to try we're not even to answer their you know they everyone knows all the stuff the protesters are saying is true and we're just going to sit here Unashamed, and eventually they'll go home in a year, in two years, because it's just people are poor, people have jobs. It's, it's very hard to prove the counterpositive. Like, how are these protests going to change the system? And eventually, um, the system will will be the victor. Um, so, so in a way, you see the system able to ride out this mom- this moment as well. That it that it is able. So to- analytically, I think they have the I think they have the advantage. Yeah. But. Um, there's a couple of things, mercifully, there's a couple of things riding against them. And I mean, I, you know, so my preference, I want the system to change. It's an awful system. It's a terrible, yeah. you know, I mean, there are worse, right? The, you know, active civil war is worse than this. And that's sort of the, the Zuama gun to all our heads. You know, like, if you force me to change, I'll kill myself and you along with me. Um, and that's their, you know, that's the blackmail of terrible governance. Um, but the, so the two main things that are to the advantage of of reformers right now is that it just doesn't work anymore. There's not enough money left. There's not enough juice left in this like broken system yeah. to feed the the this mafia machine that I referred to. Um, and you know they might yet find a workaround. They might even provoke low level conflict as a way of blackmailing people into submission or actually yeah. making more money because these war economies generate money. But when like there's no gas in the tank, you know, pick your metaphor. It doesn't work anymore. They might just have to change whether they like it or not. So but that's changing meaning. Coping. No, I mean real change. Oh, real change. No, co- yeah. coping and adapting is in the current yeah. system is yeah. not reform and okay. or change, right? Yeah. That's um, that's the that's the status quo, right? And right. that's the you know. So the safe bet is that they'll find some way to preserve, you know, maybe make a cosmetic change, maybe give up ten percent of yeah. the power they have, but basically keep the same deal going, right? Um, right. But. It's it's possible that they just won't be able to do it because the you know the Jumblats and the Hariris and the you know the Hezbollah cronies and the Amal people won't be able to make any more money governing this way and they'll and they'll they'll just 
in a way disappear in the same way like if you look at what happened after Taif there was a whole web of local bosses who were associated with the different factions um, and they had their power because of the explicit or implicit threat of force they had so yeah. they over their community over their neighborhood or town they could do whatever they wanted they These became, were largely byproducts from the 80s and yeah they were you know the, yeah. the local boss of this sure, or that sure. militia yeah. as soon as those militias no longer were militias those figures many of them just vanished or they became yes. they became business interests or party hacks with some power but nothing like what they had before yeah um, and in a similar thing like we talk we'll talk at length maybe even right now about Hezbollah's real legitimacy it's it's um, you know legitimacy that it gets simply from the backing of Iran and Syria and so on how much of it comes from the threat of force and and whatnot as a thought exercise, if the foreign policy of Iran changed and they stopped giving major weapons to Hezbollah and right. just gave money, the whole equation would change overnight, yeah. right? And so yeah. for all the talk of, like, what is it? What is the unique special sauce that Hezbollah has that keeps, you know, if they didn't have the huge military backing, they would be a very important political movement, they would have legitimacy, they would have a following, yeah. and they wouldn't be able to dictate the, the political order the way they are now. Right. Um, and that's right. not because of something they have that's miraculous, it's because they get this incredible military and economic support support from yes. abroad. And 30 years ago when the LF was getting that, they were incredibly influential and important, right? When they had um, you know, when they had foreign powers flooding them with tanks and real weaponry that allowed them to, to, to dominate the country, they mattered more than anybody else. And as soon as that was cut off... I'm not going to disagree with it, of course, but I mean, the LF in the 80s is a very different beast than Hezbollah today. I think even in terms of economic dependence as well. Sure. I don't, well, I don't... But yeah. the, the, the thing that I want to say is when you yeah. looked at the quasi-state they built, right, it right. seemed yeah. unassailable. Mm -hmm. And then it was gone. And I yeah. don't mean to make an equivalence. I mean, Hezbollah will always, I think, be like one of the most well-organized and uh, cohesive parties in Lebanon. Yeah. So, like, yeah, if, yeah. if if Iran pulled every dollar from Hezbollah, Hezbollah would continue to be incredibly important. Right, right. They just wouldn't have what they have now, yeah. and they wouldn't be able to to dictate what the limits of a reform project right, are. Right. Um, and that does lead to like the the you know the other piece of of, of this puzzle. Um, if you really want to to change Lebanon's uh, uh, formula, um, it's not going to happen with all all the people against all the parties. Some of the one mm. or two of the parties is going to have to jump ship and join the reform demand, which is unlikely, but it is possible because they'll see it as um, survival, survival, yeah. or even a way to to be pre preeminent. Right, and right. I. Some years ago, I would have thought that FPM and Hezbollah would be the candidates for that. You know, actually, I, I was going to bring that up. I heard that in the discussion. It was a shared opinion, um, I think, by everyone, with the exception of, uh, of Nadim as the moderator. But I don't recall that kind of uh, reflection on the FPM and Hezbollah in, in 2007, 2008, as the... I know that that's what they were saying, and I remember that being a very, uh, a very persuasive argument as the uh, opposition, and the more the, the less corrupt, the more 
the, actually by default the less involved politically in the FBI. Well, and they were off, all, often, I mean, at that period they were less corrupt because they had less power. So, right, with, before yeah. before they took the seats to be corrupted, right, exactly. they were by definition less corrupt because they right. didn't have but, access and money. And as soon yeah. as they did, especially the FPM, they I'm, very— But I'm curious— but, Sorry, go ahead. No, no, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But what was your—I mean, because I think you said it in a way that it didn't resonate uh, immediately— which is what? What were you seeing from their side that made you think that they were the ones to sort of usher in a better politically, uh, a, a better state for Lebanon? So you know, and in, in, in hindsight, one could say it was obvious it wouldn't turn out this way. But at the time, you know, at the time of the the marriage between FPM mm-hmm. and, and Hezbollah, and at the time when they Hezbollah and FPM were publishing. Platforms with so with this is that 2007 period where it's just you know, I, this already goes back to I mean when, when Aoun returned and right and was that 2005 yes. um, and published you know an actual reform platform for right. the FPM yes, yeah. um, and he hadn't yet uh, I mean so lots of people I talked to at the time said don't trust this person you know there's no yeah. way but, but there was there were a lot of people I met and interviewed who were just rank and file people um, who were. Uh, who believed, and these are, so these are not powerful, important people. These are just you know regular Lebanese, yeah, sure, you sure, know, sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, lots of Christians, lots of Shia, who believed that their two parties were um, were going to engage in a anti-sectarian reform project, and that their two leaders, you know, the leader uh, of the FPM and the yeah. leader of Hezbollah, were the only political party leaders in Lebanon who were not hereditary leaders. They weren't there mm. because they're fathers gave them the, the seat. They weren't planning to give it to their son. Um, again, you know, this is 10 years ago. Uh, so, but, you know, this is pre-Basil when and yeah. all these. Yeah, but, but so the point is, there was a uh, certainly believable to some Lebanese mm-hmm. idea mm-hmm. that these parties were going to change the system. You know, election, election processes were going to be reformed so that you would have a real right. Right. proper uh, parliamentary system with a real secret ballot, universal suffrage, uh, you know, no longer these sort of easily manipulated uh, elections. And I found that at the time to be plausible in part because I think from Hezbollah's perspective, they knew they would do even better under a reform system. So they weren't they weren't proposing reforms because they wanted to reform themselves out of power. They were proposing reforms because they thought, you know, the the more broad-based elections were, the more votes Hezbollah was going to get. Right. Um, so that's why at the time I thought it was a long shot, but possible. Today it's not because I think all the parties, including Hezbollah, see real meaningful reform would be bad for all of them. Right. Uh, they no longer, there's no longer... But that hereditary story is interesting because, yeah, that is that there is, um, I mean, that has happened in other situations, but that those two examples do stand out, and I think it's it's quite uh, it's quite telling when you hear on the streets the even today the chants they're against generations of the same families, but those two are really not they they stand out still. Although although I want to get your take on this, the phrase kellon yani kellon, which still is said, although maybe it's not as emotional as it was four months ago. Do you think that that literally means the post-war, civil war structure and everyone involved, or is there still an exception? Meaning, does that party have 
special status, period. A special thank you to everyone listening to the Beirut Banyan podcast. And these episodes are made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Patreon is a monthly subscription. You can donate as much as you'd like and cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time contribution. Any amount is appreciated. And now back to our episode with Tenesis Kambanis. Hezbollah has a special status because of its coercive power. The real special status it has is that it alone, among all these parties, has the power to shut you up either through discrete pressure or through outright violence. And it has right. used that pressure. Right. And everybody knows it. Right. So that is different. Right. And uh, now... All these warlords are the worst. They're awful, right? And 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 for sure, most of the people I know who have personally suffered uh, oppression for for voicing political dissent in Lebanon are being persecuted by thin-skinned FPM leaders and not by Hezbollah. Okay, so when you actually right. yes. when you actually add up who's being called in for questioning by by military intelligence for like blog posts, it's almost never someone who criticized Hezbollah. It's somebody. It's like a non-sectarian person who's yeah. not part of a party who dared to criticize Jaja or more likely Basil. Right. Um, and I mean, the Jaja thing is interesting too, because there are people who've been hauled up for criticizing Jaja and you say, what, like, why? What, what, yeah. you know, what's in it for him? And my, my sense of this is that all these warlords are trying to police their fiefdoms. So the big, and the biggest threat to them is independent voices. They actually do not mind. Like if a Hezbollah supporter were to criticize Jaja, no one would care on TV. But if a independent journalist, especially someone who confuses sectarian boundaries, what if it's a, you know, a nonpartisan Shia who criticizes many parties and then criticizes, you know, a member of the Zuama, that kind of person is is a big threat because it suggests that you can exist outside of the sectarian order. Right. Whereas if you're a, you know, a yeah. Sunni nationalist or a Christian nationalist, you're playing a part that's very comfortable. Um, so even if you're attacking another party, you're reinforcing the order in which you need your sectarian zaim to be, you know, to protect you right. against this, right. this, this outside force. Yeah. Um, so to your question of uh, the special status, um, I, I have felt even since the the garbage protests that there are a lot of Lebanese who want who really do mean they they do not reserve so so they will say like someone needs to protect us from from Israel fine but that is no longer an excuse for you know Hezbollah's corrupt uh, 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 you know use of national electricity for its own benefit without paying for it and so on they're you know they might not be the worst of the lot but they're not immune they're part of this uh, they're part of this uh, uh, pinata of, of the treasury and, of, and these of are the nation of, um, yeah, of Hezbollah yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, right so so yeah. those people exist but they won't um, I mean they they can't cannot uh, easily make a big public position about this because there's there's a very direct co- direct cost. Right. Um, and honestly, if you're them, if you think this movement is not going to work, what's the point? You know, like you're yeah. going to destroy your life in order to to right, to right. make a symbolic stand, and in the end, 
you know, the, the, the current arrangement of power stays the same. It's almost able to see that this doesn't, this will not last. Yeah, because, because otherwise you could, I mean, think about this. Is any is are there ever going to be a bunch of people from Khandak al Ramik who are going to go and, and march on uh, the speaker's house and say like we've been, you know, doing as you ask for generations and we are still mired in poverty. Enough is enough, you know. Yes. Do something. There, try to imagine that scene. That scene's not going to happen. You know, I I fully agree. And at the same time, the first few days, it seemed like that was happening to a point. And that's really what stood out to me. It's those first few days where that was plausible, unexpectedly. It, I think it, it, it would happen. Yeah. The the moment a reform project becomes tenable, there. So so people aren't. People aren't dumb and people aren't mm. reflexively sectarian or obedient. So, like, when when and if there's a real chance for change, there will be plenty of people from Khandak al-Ramik, there'll be Sunnis from Tariq Jadida, there'll be Shia from the Dahiya, and so on, who will support any number of, of excellent initiatives that are not led by their traditional uh, leaders. Yes. Um, but until those things are viable, they're not going to jump into the forefront of these things, and they're certainly not going to—they're uh, not going to sort of attack as false idols the shibboleths of their parties because there, there's no there's no percentage in it for right. them. Some right. of them quietly still do, and many of them quietly, if you talk to them off the streets, will will have extensive and very. Uh, a nuanced critiques of what's wrong with right. the system. I sense that they're able to be nervous about criticizing the respective leadership and at the same time willing to suggest that it's time that they pack up. So it's almost like both both could happen in the same person. That they, they know why they're not able to fully embrace a revolution but at the same time they're able to see why they've reached this point. Mm. It's almost like an awareness of why we're here. And at the same time cannot go all the way. It almost seems like a psychological barrier was was fractured, maybe broken a bit, but it didn't fully collapse in in October. Well, and one thing to think about, so you know, in in Lebanon, it it seems almost like an impossible destiny to overcome this, you know, the muhasasa, right? I mean, like yeah. this, the the fact that we're going to always have a Shia speaker and a Sunni prime right. minister and yeah. a Christian president, but you know, there, there's no reason based on Lebanon's history or the region's history uh, to think that that's somehow going to happen, go on forever. I mean, it might. It could go on forever. But, you know, one year from now or 10 years from now, there could be a Lebanese nationalist in power who is from the wrong sect for his or her office running the country. And then people will say, oh, my God, it was inevitable that you know right. this broken system right. yes. would be subsumed by a national movement right. where some figure who was able to rally Lebanese around, you know, probably not a kumbaya lovely liberal project but you know around some kind of other other yeah. project and and because these kinds of political transformations happen again and again in history and they've happened again yes. and again in the arab world and in the whole world right the arab world is not somehow a, a departure or an aberration from human history you right. know it's part of a continuum of political history and transformation so yes. when, when and if that happens you know so Everyone accepts the possibility that Lebanon could collapse into war again someday, and I think many of us think it's unlikely, but that possibility is always on the table as a possibility. And I would say it should be, and you know what else should be on, on the table? That, that a new type of leader will emerge. I like that delineation, and I think that's a perfect way to touch on a more recent subject which you've been writing about, and I'm glad that I now have my personal copy, Citizenship and Its Discontents. Uh, 
you're in a way touching on the the birth or perhaps I don't want to sound too romantic, but the rebirth of what it means to be Lebanese. That there's a citizen component to the story. There's an identity there. It I don't think it existed this way in the past, and it may transform into something else. But clearly, a citizenry or flickers of citizenship were on display. And it was great to see for the first time a genuine sense that we're, we want to get rid of the old order. And as a, I mean, as somebody who's seen previous attempts at change, those few weeks, that initial stretch was very, 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 uh, it was beautiful. And I don't know what a Lebanese citizen is even until today. <laughs> I don't know what it means to be Lebanese. I think it's a very open question. And I think that's a good thing. I think the more universal the answer, the better. I don't think it has to be confined. But I want to touch on the issue of pluralism and the way Lebanon stands out when it comes to the region. The intercommunal regime that Lebanon inherited and modified to a point, that thing that we all live with, which you were talking about, that seems to cope or seems to get by, whether it's periods of war, periods of peace, uh, periods of instability like today, it may even contribute at times to it for its own survival. But the other side of the story, which is among the more among the more tolerant parts of the Middle East, and Lebanon has had some breathing space, which other countries may have had a little earlier and don't have today. Is there any defense in your mind or any persuasive argument that the intercommunal arrangement Lebanon has, this power-sharing mechanism, that it is salvageable, it can be reformed, and that maybe that is the model Lebanon should keep. And the other side being that the secular state, which many people are calling for, which I consider myself one of those people, wanting a secular state, wanting a civil state, that I might be wrong and wanting that. Well, I don't think you're wrong in wanting it. Okay. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, so that's, that is the question. That's sort of the central question of, of how, what, what kind of future one can imagine. Uh, and, you know, I have a couple of, a couple of thoughts in response to what you said. And I think you beautifully summed up the dilemma. So one, I mean, for starters, yeah, the default assumption is that the current order continues, right? I mean, right. The, you know, that is in any field of human endeavor, you know, past performance is the best predictor of future performance. Not the only one, but, <laughs> you know, probably that's what's going to happen. Some version of, yeah. you know, uh, uh, you know, the, the Ottoman millet systems uh, ethos as it has manifested in, right. in a yeah. confessional uh, Lebanon. So, yes, that that is probably the way some version of that is what will unfold um, and yes, in that framework, under that umbrella, things could be less bad than they are. Hmm. But for me, I think that, that no, that, 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 that system, a system in which people's rights are based on their religious identity as defined by clerical authorities, mm-hmm. is always going to be uh, 
a, a, a bad kind of regime to live mm-hmm. under. Mm-hmm. Now, there are worse ones to live under, yeah. and this is its defense. The defense of this is that so Lebanon is the last remaining country in the Middle East where there is genuine diversity and, and, and demographic pluralism and in which no one community has dominated, erased, and wiped out the other. Right. Okay, so that is, that's it. There's no other place where you have different religions and ethnic groups that have been able to preserve communal autonomy yeah. and, and avoid erasure or full suppression by some majority. Right. And that is important. That's yeah. a great thing, right? I mean, the yeah. alternatives are worse. You don't right. want to be, you know, an Iraqi Christian or a Palestinian under Israeli occupation or, or so on. Or Turkish Armenian or, or whatever. Yeah, Turkish Armenian or, Armenian or, yeah. or an Egyptian cop today, yeah, right? I mean, exactly. these are all, all these categories of people are second-class citizens at best in the nations they live in. So uh, Lebanon's alternative is better than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but your rights are based on whatever your sect is and as defined by your sect's leaders. So you don't even get to say what kind of, you know, who you are, to what extent being a Sunni, let's say, is, is, is instrumental to who you are. Um, and the way people live in actuality, people marry, inherit, and so on, there's no room for it in this rigid system. Um, and there's yeah. no room, so there's no room for things like civil marriage. There's also no room for rights, and due process. And this is where, this is the problem of the formulation of the sectarian state or a, a, a secular state. And so what, what, what I posit is, and not everyone, not everyone agrees with this approach, I say we have to stand for universal rights. And if universal rights are properly enumerated, they carve out room for everybody's identity. Okay, yeah. so, uh, so the so the wrong approach is French laicite, right? In which you are an in, extreme. You're enforcing formal, yeah. a version of, of secularism right. that one part. You know, it's it's one cultural brand of secularism, right, and you right. say that's our our state religion, and you may not wear a headscarf, and you may not wear a cross around your so neck. The, and in then, other words, the Turkish model. Yes, like, which is one, yeah, yeah. You know, even the same the same name, right? right like yeah. Leek is was what the what Atatürk called it. So that that is not the only alternative to a confessional system. Another alternative is universal rights. Um, universal rights include freedom of religion. You just can't have freedom of religion uh, that that eclipses my freedom to live the way I want. Right. So that means you can't have certain communal authorities, and that would be a loss of power for, for clerics right. in Lebanon. Uh, on the other hand, properly enumerated and enforced, you'd be free to be as religious as you want. Yeah. Okay? You just can't you you can't say that we have a Maronite you know right to to you know the head of the army and a Orthodox right to the central bank job, but you can uh, Maronites sorry. as well. Oh, that's Maronite. Yeah, Salam is a Maronite. Oh, I thought he was Orthodox. I'm so disappointed. Um, <laughs> so it's a hard um, it's a hard idea to to like imagine how that works in practice, but it is it's a radical break um, and. You know, one has like, you know, if you're promoting this, um, you have to locate this in Arab history, right? You, you know, because yeah. because the counter argument is, oh, this is some kind of European import, and 
what I'm talking about isn't. I'm talking about the the Arab idea of universal rights, which has existed as a current of Arab political thought yeah. uh, for for centuries. Um, and you know, it's, it's it's not up to me to say what the Arab world should do, sure. but yeah. that exists as a as a indigenous idea, and I, it's no less legitimate than indigenous religious ideas. But let me ask you, what what is? I mean, we're looking back. I know at a long period of time, but the last. At least the 20th century, when it comes to modern Middle East history, just the basic idea of inclusion, which is in the subtext of your book, why has it been such a struggle for minorities, religious communities, to feel fully invested in their governing structure? And I know that Lebanon is, has endless problems. I know Lebanon has, at many points, failed uh, in, in finding a way forward together. But despite all the existential flaws within Lebanon, it does feel like every community has its place in this dysfunctional situation. And you look at the... That's right. Every community has its place. And yeah. if you don't like that place, too bad for you. Exactly. Right. You've got to stay, right. you've got to stay in that place. Right. Um, and, you know, one also... So why has it been so awful? It's been so awful because there's been, you know, in the 20th century, we had wave after wave of fascism, totalitarianism, and majoritarianism. These were some of the most successful, vibrant ideologies of, of recent history. Mm. Uh, so we have not seen, um, you know... I I mean, in other places, in Indonesia, the, you know, Islamic forces manifested themselves largely in political movements that embraced plurality of religion. Okay, right. and yeah. so like, why did that happen? I mean, there's 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 sure. diff- different history, different reasons, but there's nothing about you know Islam that makes it go yeah. in some in some bad way. However, in the Arab world, in the 20th century, and in recent times, what we've had is several waves of toxic majoritarianism. You know, uh, Ikhwanism, uh, Takfiriism. We've had the Iranian Revolution's version of of Shia uh, eschatology and and end times. You know. Know, messianic fervor. These are not universal ideas, but they have been very dominant in this at this period of history, and they've been very uh, uh, destructive. Yes. Okay. So um, the the so actual it's, it's the fate of Lebanon that it kind of was shielded enough from that. Lebanon was shielded by the by the happy accident of of its demographics. Right. No right. single group. And, and groups tried, right? I mean, there's yeah. there's some some very chilling moments in 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 Lebanese history, including during the civil war, yes. and even in more recent times where various groups have tried to have their way. Happily, they can't because they don't have the numbers, you know. And that's been that's been the saving grace. It's not. Yeah. I don't think so. Some Lebanese argue differently. I don't think it's because of some majesty in the Lebanese formula that, that mm. inoculated mm. it against toxic and poisonous mm-hmm. ideas. It's that the numbers didn't work. Um, and so any would-be tyrant has been unable to impose themselves. That's interesting. So otherwise, in a projection or prediction, otherwise it would have just ended up like the rest of the region. I mean, like, like another, so it could have ended up like Syria, okay, right. where yeah. you don't, you don't have a, uh, you don't exactly have a sectarian rule. Um, and, you know, you have this, you have a dictatorship uh, that has, you know, essentially a, a political ideology and a and a and a family, you know, one you know one family's preeminence as the core of its, uh, you know, its sort of uh, 
philosophical right to rule the whole country. Um, that's not, so they're not, you know, they're not there because they're Alawite. They're there because they right. won and right. they were, right. you know, merciless in their yes. exercise of power. Something like that could have happened in Lebanon. You could imagine a turn of events where one or another uh, uh, warlord had succeeded at conquering the whole country, and then who knows what sort of national idea they would have they would have forged to legitimize themselves. That could have happened. I'm glad that didn't happen. That's one of yeah. those alternatives that would have been worse, right? right. That's a, right. a non-sectarian alternative that would be worse than today's uh, jerry-rigged pluralism. Right. Okay, and that is what you know. One of the things we think about when we think about reforming um, Lebanon, and I thought about this very hard when I was living there and watching people I really admired. Uh, you know, after after the 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 garbage protests and these these really brave and wonderful civil society activists from all over the country trying to imagine how to take their country forward. Yes. Um, and you know the the powers that be were actively threatening to provoke violent civil strife if they were pushed too yes. hard to reform. Yes. Um, which is you know, unconscionable and awful, but there they were doing it. And right. if you're, you know, I mean, I'm only was observing this as a, you know, as a, as a resident alien. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're the reformer yes. and, and even if it's blackmail, you don't lightly push your country to the brink of sectarian conflict, even if you know it's avoidable and not your fault. Right. You right. know, but yeah, right. yeah, yeah, and yet that is such a real, uh, cost um, that and, and and decent people don't want to be held responsible for that, even if it's not their fault. Um, and I think that is, you know, th- that is a disadvantage for reform movements, but it's also an advantage for them because they really um, they are understood or or should be, can be understood to really be invested in the best outcome for the country and not in wealth and power for themselves and their parties. Right. And that is something that distinguishes them. I don't know what that leads to though. I mean, this mm-hmm. is a real mm-hmm. a real conundrum because you can't develop. I mean, this is one of the problems that um, the the reformists uh, everywhere have in these very oppressive power equilibria. You can't come up with a new governing formula from the outside. Okay, the new like yeah. a new identity, a new national yeah. compact has to be forged by people in power. Ultimately, uh, you know, right. any new, uh, you know, whether it's Gamal Abdel Nasser founding it as he, you know, takes over on, on the back of a tank or, you know, whatever. These are, again, not usually good outcomes, but, right. but right. transformative processes are negotiated from within the halls of power. Which is in a way admitting that despite the best intentions and motives of the average protester, these parties or these figures are here to stay regardless. That, In other words, that they are, there's only so much removing of the structure you can do. And yeah, I mean, you have, you, you know, in, in the dream scenario where change happens, it will happen because some of these reformers end up in positions of power. Right. And then right. once they're in positions of power, they can and will, yeah. uh, uh, negotiate some new modus vivendi, hopefully a better one, right? Where right. they will bring in yeah. these ideas about about citizenship yes. instead of identity yes. yeah. uh, as the driver of, of you know the Lebanese governing compact mm-hmm. and change the, the relationship between the state and, yeah. and, and the citizenry. Um, and but do you sense that that is happening at the core of all of these protest movements, including Iraq and potentially Iran, that what we're seeing now is a transition towards something I think in Lebanon, for sure, we've we've seen these these ideas mm-hmm. articulated mm-hmm. more yeah. more than in any other place that I'm intimately familiar with, right? Uh, because 
there's been decades of, of civic activism um, right. by people. And, and by the way, this thing I just said about, you know, these these things having to be changed within the halls of power. A lot of the people involved in the protest movement are rich and powerful people. Right. They're not yes. only disenfranchised that's people. True. And that's important. That's good. That's the, that's a good thing. That's actually the um, magic of the moment that there, it's all, it cuts across many different lines. Yeah. And so when you have, you know, people with no power and members of the elite together uh, over in the case of Lebanon at least three decades, you know, and I'm sure, I mean, people have predated this activism to the 80s uh, or even the 70s to me, but certainly since the end of the Civil War and the early opposition to Solidaire, there is a group of individuals who are still to this day involved in this and and and, and others around them. Um, they have taken on these ideas and they have a real critique of the status quo and a real alternative voice of how they would govern, on what basis. Um, it's not uniform. And I mean, this is one of the uh, one of the things that makes Lebanon so interesting is that you do have people who argue, mostly in private, but they say, like, you know, what, how, how could we uh, no longer have the resistance as the resistance and still protect ourselves from Israel in a reformed Lebanon? Um, and there, there are people who have ideas about this. Um, and, uh, you know, how, how do you uh, make sure that, you know, Christians will still be able to sur- survive in the Levant if you no longer have Christian warlords effect- effectively apportioned a, a higher share of power than their numbers would dictate? Um, and again, I, I think there's an answer to that in universal rights and real due process. But these are are, you know the, the the real core questions that that trip up a reform project. One is the resistance question, um, because for all the you know the, the the criticism of Hezbollah and its authoritarianism and its sort of self-serving use of this, they really have served as a bulwark against Israeli aggression, and no one in the state appears able or willing to. To, to, to take that role um, over. And the second one, which is uh, a, a real elephant in the room, which everyone knows, which is that the, the Christian share of the population has fallen to maybe 20% of the population, um, and their share of power is close to 50. Which points back to the demographics thing that you were referring to, which is that maybe, unfortunately, now, if Lebanon is to behave the way other countries do in the region, societies well, right. so the, degenerate. The, 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 the yeah. fear is that if you went to a direct democracy, <laughs> Right. Lebanese Christians would be treated like Iraqi Christians. Right. Uh, uh, but I want to go back to the issue of Hezbollah and just that argument, which is shared among many, that you, uh, Hezbollah has been that defense against Israel. Would it also be fair to say that the Lebanese state has not even been given that chance in the post-war makeup of the way Lebanon emerged, whether it's under Syrian Occupation and indirect rule, or whether yes, I mean it's the, it's the it's a chicken and chicken and egg problem, which right. is that certainly now or certainly since 2006, there's no opportunity for for an autonomous, a genuinely autonomous national Lebanese army to prove itself because Hezbollah is already within it and above it, right. um, and yeah. constraining it from 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 being that. And so so this is an unwinnable argument because right. Right. you know Hezbollah will say. Look at the you know, the Lebanese army. It's at the mercy of the U.S. Department of Defense and this and that. It can't really function properly and autonomously, so we have to be here. And the critic of Hezbollah can correctly say the main reason why it can't properly function is because you won't let it. 
uh, because you are physically and literally more powerful than it, and you block it from being able to function the way a real and national both parties argument. kind of dictate where we are today to a, to a certain degree, which is that, yeah. yeah and, um, you know, a radical, a, I don't see how these kinds of breakthroughs would happen, but imagine a radical breakthrough where Hezbollah just has all its fighters join the army, right? Which would, you know, why not? Yeah, I'm sure that would be a problem for the United States. But the the the, the idea is that you could do this if, if there were good good faith, right? They could say the the way we'll trust the army is by disbanding as an autonomous militia and having our our individual fighters and commanders who we trust join the national army under the national army command, and then we know that the army will fulfill that role because there'll be 10,000 people in it who last week were in Hezbollah. I think there's been over 30 years of dancing around that question, and every stumbling block to that goal was uh, was given, was shown. Yeah, I mean, the reason they won't do it is because they don't want to actually give up that course, power, yeah, right? That's, and that's, the, that's the, yeah. the, the last, I mean, maybe we should end on this on this idea, is the, the, one of the cards that, this protest movement can play uh, vis-a-vis all the ruling status quo powers, and especially Hezbollah, is a moral challenge and a moral demand. Say, like, mm. these are your words, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, Syed Hassan Nasrallah, you've said these things over and over for decades. Um, if you believe them, then give us this level of dignity that that has been your, you know, your hallmark. Um, and that means give us a secret ballot give us actual security yeah. give us give all of us the electricity uh, that, that they have in the Dahia and you know access to health care that you get if you're in you know in in a certain neighborhood of, of the Dahia let us all have that those are wonderful things we don't want to take them away from you yeah. we just all should have them it's a privilege to have this conversation with you in your office the Century Foundation, and I just want to end it by saying that I really like what you've done to this office. <laughs> not just, not not forget the audio equipment and my, my jealousy of your podcast equipment. Uh, I like the lighting. I like uh, even even the uh, the friendly food, the apples in the corner. Um, I like the physical photos that you've put up because that you you've dated yourself by doing that. And also these little pictures and clocks and signs of your history, your personal history that's tied to the region. If I have any knack for interior decorating, I picked it up in Beirut. Oh, good for you. <laughs> this is why I like your office then. So, a privilege to die and citizenship and its discontents, both worth checking out. And if any of your listeners have made it this far in your podcast, um, I uh, encourage you to look for my podcast. You can find it by searching for TCF World, the Century Foundation world um, and uh, you can hear our much less frequent and less in-depth than Ronnie's podcast but uh, I will link it up to the episode as well yeah check that podcast out and hopefully I'll be joining one of your episodes down the road thanks for having me on Ronnie thank you sir I appreciate it mentioned during the episode, A Privilege to Die, and Citizenship and Its Discontents, are linked in the details box, as well as the podcast, Tanassis Hosts, 
And once again, if you're enjoying these episodes, kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Link to the details box as well. Any amount is appreciated. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah. This is the Beirut Banyan.